Yes, hello everyone, and welcome to None But the Brave, a part of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean, and this is the season premiere of our third season. Hard to believe. What do you think? That's true. Who never, whoever thought that uh, two years ago we'd still be talking about this guy like we do? <laughs> well, I just can't believe people are still listening. Oh, there is that as well. That's actually the bigger, the bigger mystery. They're listening, I think, because we have been very fortunate to get some really great guests on the show. The last season ended with the guys from Backstreets. And tonight we have a really, really big guest and we're very excited about it. Oh, very excited. This is our uh, our first our first East Reader. Yes. And maybe we'll get the big guy, too. We'll see <laughs> if dreams came true. Wouldn't, wouldn't that, that be nice? nice? Yes. <laughs> So I think let's get right to it tonight. What do you think? Let's stop delaying and get to it. All right. So tonight we have a guest who absolutely needs no introduction to our audience, but what the hell, Flynn, I'll introduce him anyway. (laughs) Our guest tonight has been the consigliere to two of the most famous bosses to come out of New Jersey. He's a musician. He's a singer, songwriter, arranger, producer, actor, TV writer, TV producer, educator with teachrock.org and now he's an author with his newly released autobiography unrequited infatuations Stephen van zant welcome to the podcast how we doing boys we're doing really well that you're here thank you so much very excited hey all right so we we have read your book and it really is a it's an excellent memoir of sex drugs rock and roll i mean you have lived an amazing life. And it comes across in your book. I mean, it, I hear your voice as, I, as I'm reading. Was that the intention? Yeah, that's always the first uh, sort of challenge. Um, you know, uh, and, and I decided, you know, the way to do it was to picture doing the audio book, you know, uh, which I knew I would eventually be doing. Uh, and kind of write it that way, you know. So, so I, um, I told the editor and the publisher, I said, look, uh, this is going to not be gr- grammatically correct, <laughs> okay? You're going <laughs> to see a lot of weird sort of fragmented sentences, uh, et cetera. But I said, you know, I'm doing that intentionally, and, and I wanted to read the way I talk, you know. Uh, so they, they went along with that, uh, you know, luckily for me. And that's why, you know, it does sound it does sound like me because it's me. (laughs) Really, some of these books, you wonder, is the person going to go there, especially in these rock and roll autobiographies? And your book, I tremendously enjoyed it. I know Flynn tremendously enjoyed it. You really don't hold back. Did you feel at any point like, oh, if I say something like this, someone's going to be upset? Obviously, (laughs) you've worked with some really big people. Well, I left out most of those things. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You're getting the things that, you know, I thought were, you know, relatively, uh, relatively civilized. Um, You know, look, look, it's the truth. I I am. I I try to be mostly, uh, you know, positive. I I, literally, I I left out a lot of the, the negative stuff. You know, you run into a lot of assholes in, in 40 years, you know. Especially and, in your business. And, yeah. And and without without having a manager, 
uh, there's no buffer. You know what I mean? So you're, you're literally, you know, constantly, uh, you know, having contact with less than uh, savory people. And, um, you know, and I don't cause trouble for anybody. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't look for trouble. I don't start trouble ever. Uh, but there are people who want to start trouble with you, you know, uh, just the way in human nature is for some people, whether, you know, for whatever reason, you know, uh, they want to fuck with you. And, uh, you know, so occasionally uh, you got to you got to deal with it, you know, and I, I, I literally um, I don't know, there's less less than half a dozen examples of it, I think, in the book. And uh, believe me, that's out of, you know. 50 or 60 that there could have been <laughs> so, you know, and, and I left out some of the worst ones you know uh yeah I, I mean you know, I, I wanted it, I had I had I had bigger things on my mind than you know that kind of you know that kind of gossipy type stuff you know I didn't want to do much of it and um and uh my own narrative is the least interesting part of the book for me you know I, I wanted it to be I wanted to share what I've learned at, you know um, you know, share a little bit of the, the you know, the, the multiple crafts that I've been involved in and, uh, you know what I mean? And, and kind of pass along what I've seen, what I've done. So it's not about me so much as much as where I've been and what I've done and what I've seen and, you know, hoping that it would leave behind something that's more useful. Uh, I didn't want it to be just about a, you know, a rock and roll guy or limited to a rock and roll audience or even a music audience. You know, I wanted right. to read like a, like a detective novel, you know, where you don't know what's coming next because I don't know. I didn't know what was coming next. You know yeah, what I mean? You, and, you know, it starts off as a music book, obviously, because <laughs> that's where I start, you know, but then it kind of just goes into these other places that are, it's become, you know, I wanted to, you know, to, to reveal, you know, reflect the more universal, quest for one's identity, you know, and, and one's purpose in life. You know, I think that's something that everybody goes through and I wanted to pass that along, you know. Let's go back to the beginning because in the book you write so passionately about the artists that had an impact on you, especially the Beatles. And then by the end of the book, you brought it full circle. 50 years later, Paul McCartney wants to play with your band on your stage. What do you think your 15 year old self would have thought if he could hear that story? Uh, there's no 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 chance uh, <laughs> that uh, he would have had that kind of imagination. Um, the whole thing was a fantasy. I mean, the entire the, the Beatles' existence was a fantasy. You know, uh, for those of us who really were not fitting in to uh, the society we were presented with, you know. Um, and keep in mind, all right, before the Beatles. There was no uh, sort of teenage industry, you know. Uh, I mean, teenagers themselves were only were only ten years old. You know, teenagers were invented in the fifties, as I, I talk about in, in the book. Mm-hmm. That whole, the, you know, I, I set up the, I set up the, you know, the Beatles entrance by talking about how how the whole thing really started in the fifties with leisure time after World War Two and, and all that, you know, and how all of a sudden we were the richest country in the world and. And, you know, that awkward couple of years between adolescence and adulthood uh, suddenly became uh, three, four, five years and became this thing called the teenager. Didn't exist before the 50s. And, and, um, and so suddenly there, were, there was this huge teenage marketplace, you know, for, for which people 
of course, and, and you came up with all kinds of things to supply them because we are the, the kings of capitalism, after all. <laughs> yes. So, so we come up with, you know, hula hoops and, and yo-yos and, and, you know. All those, and, uh, all those fun fads. And including this thing called rock and roll, you know. But it was kind of a novelty acts and kind of these bizarre pioneers, you know, they were all, they were all weird and, and weirdly entertaining and, and weirdly novelty acts, really. Um, and, and then suddenly, all of the things we thought were novelty acts turn out to be the naissance of a renaissance. You, you know, suddenly they're, they're the pioneers of a, of a new art form. And so the, the entire 50s had to be looked at an entirely different way after the Beatles and the, and the rest of the British invasion hit and credited them, you know, people we never heard of. You know, my generation, right. I never heard of Bradbury, never heard of them. Never heard of Bo Diddley. Never heard of Little Richard. I never heard of Muddy Waters. Why would I? How would I? How would I know them? You know. So, boom. You know. And suddenly, so not only are they turning us on to our own black roots of of, of popular music and rock and roll, but but they're suddenly uh, they they they're they're a they're a teenage industry, and, and so every band that has come after them owes them that gratitude because there, there was no such thing. There was no such thing as bands, first of all. Right. Or you had solo you know, artists all the time. Yeah, solo acts and doo-wop, you know, doo-wop groups, you know. And so they, so, you know, but they introduced the idea of young people actually uh, being in business. You know, they were, you know, however, 19, 20, 21 years old, you know. This was a, a whole new weird thing, man, that was a miracle. Uh, for those of us, again, who, who were not really, you know, I, I, I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to work, you know, work a normal job. I didn't want to go in the military. I was too small for sports. Well, what am I going to do? You know, and suddenly, boom, here's this new world. And boy, was that exciting. I mean, it was like uh, literally a lifeline, you know, uh, you know, you're drowning, you know. In this in this weird world, you know, you know, you really can't figure out where your place is, and suddenly, you know, they they threw that lifeline, and as I say, the Rolling Stones really completed it because because um, the Beatles were just were just way too good uh, to to imagine doing it. I mean, when by the time we saw them, they were halfway through the career and they were extremely sophisticated. I mean. You know, the harmony was perfect and, and the hair was perfect and they were perfect, you know, and um, and the Stones came four months later and, and made it look easier than it was. So the way I put it is uh, the Beatles revealed a new world and the Stones invited us in. OK, that's an interesting way to put it, put it. Where does not, not to go back too much, but where does Elvis fit in in the in like in the 50s? Where Elvis Presley? Yeah. Where does yeah. he fit in in your in your narrative? Well, uh, extremely, extremely important, Um, um, arguably uh, the most important guy in terms of the uh, popularization of this new, uh, uh, you know, genre called rock and roll. Uh, In my mind, Little Richard invented it. Uh, Chuck Berry was indisputably the king of rock and roll for uh, at least at least three reasons. Uh, he brought the lyrics. 
uh, he brought the guitar and, uh, and, and the performance, his performances were uh, extremely entertaining. So he made, he made, uh, uh, I mean, his lyrics not only, not only were the, the greatest lyrics that everybody uh, learned from and, and copied, uh, uh, but also uh, he institutionalized this new thing called teenagers. You know, he, he uh, actually, you know, um, put them in the songs, you know, this, this, you know, um, sweet, sweet little sixteen, and you know, little queening, uh, yeah, drop a little queening, drop a dime in a jukebox, you know, you know, you know, he's talking about, you know, that lifestyle, that you know, was fringy, you know, at best, and kind of just starting, you know, very, very nascent, you know, you know, and he was just institutionalizing it, man, you know, and the kids go after school and they go to the malt shop and they put the money in the jukebox and they start dancing, and you know, man, it sounded like fun, you know, so he. So, you know, Chuck Berry, you know, was the most important, uh, you know, uh, you, you really, you have, you'd have to say, you know, Little Richard being the archetype and the one who embodied the entire sensibility of rock and roll, this is his androgyny, his, his, his liberation, uh, you know, his, 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 you know, he opened his mouth and out came liberation, okay, and that's what the essence of rock and roll is. Chuck Berry brought the details, and, and uh, but though they both had one problem, uh, they were black. You see, so uh, that was very limiting in those days. Um, they had black radio and they had white radio, you know, and eventually now Alan Freed and a couple of other brave DJs would start playing that black, black music for white kids, which was uh, not, <laughs> Radical. A good, you know, not a good thing to do. And, and they eventually crucified Alan Freed for doing it. But, but, um, but it really started, it was the, the game changer because um, then they started to cross over and then suddenly uh, Chuck Berry was having hits on the white radio as well. Uh, but, any, but, but Elvis Presley, um, who is coming from mostly that black music, but also I mean, his first single really defines what rock and roll would be. You know, one side is, is black blues and the other side is, is hillbilly country, you know. The guitars. Uh, and and, that, and that, that combination of hillbilly, you know, and, you know, and blues, that white and black thing was, was really embodied in, in Elvis Presley. So uh, he would, he would, um, um, you know, he didn't have the first hit. The first hit was Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, which, which was the very first number one rock and roll song because it was a theme song to the movie Blackboard Jungle. Uh, but Elvis, um, Really, uh, you know, Bill Haley was a little bit, you know, <laughs> he looked like your country uncle from, you know, <laughs> from Mississippi. Uh, but, but, you know, but Elvis, you know, Elvis had that whole thing, the charisma and the, you know, the good looking, the same androgyny that Little Richard had, by the way. But, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, a little, little less obvious, <laughs> but a little, little, little bit less makeup, uh, uh, you know. And so, so Elvis, you know, you know, that his appearance on Ed Sullivan, uh, I don't know, 1956, I guess it was. I forget now, 55, 56. Um, you know, we really blew the doors open, and uh, and so so he he was the most important cat in terms of uh, publicizing and popularizing this new uh, this new genre of rock and roll. And then and then the bands came in, and that just blew it all blew the door open for for everybody. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a whole nother, yeah, a whole nother chapter because, because all of those pioneers, keep in mind, they were all gone by the end of the 50s, early 60s, you know? Uh, the rock, rock history went into this, 
it's it's kind of known as a fallow period, you know, kind of a an in-between period. Um, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of good records were, were, were coming out in that you know in that period. Uh, you know, uh, but 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 in between the pioneers and the British invasion, there was, you know, those couple of years where um, you know, historians re refer to it as a sort of, you know, slow period because all of the pioneers were gone at once. It was amazing. Elvis is in jail. Elvis is in the army. Uh, Chuck Berry's in jail. Bo Diddley became a sheriff. Uh, Little Richard became a minister. <laughs> Buddy Holly died in a car crash, uh, plane crash. Uh, Eddie Cochran in a, in a car crash. You know, uh, literally, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're all gone. You know, and what people thought that's the end of rock and roll. Honest to God, that was the end. You know, uh, you know. Now, you know, like I said, a couple. Couple of people were still making great records, you know, the Beach Boys, you know, and then Four Seasons and Gary U.S. Bonds and Dion, you know, you know, there were still, you know, girl groups, you know, Motown got started in those fallow years, supposedly. So, you know, there was a lot of action, but it wasn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, it didn't seem to be socially relevant anymore, you know, or, or you know, something, something like that. And, uh, and until uh, the, the Beatles then they introduced this concept of, of being in a band. And that's when I and that's when I start tuning in, and, and a lot of people like me, I wasn't interested in show business really, and uh, you know, in, in the entertainment business, but being in a band was appealing. You know, that's something I wanted. I wanted very much to. Uh, I, I could really relate to the friendship part of it. You know, the family part of it. Uh, that's what that's what attracted me. So let's pick up there because after the British invasion, as you just said, teenagers started to take up playing music they got into bands and and areas created music scenes and one of those scenes of course was down on the jersey shore where you found yourself and where several other people who went on to prominence found themselves what was it like being there in the in the mid to late 60s as that scene was really going well we were the luckiest generation um by far uh, you know and i i actually feel a little guilty about it how how, how lucky we were because uh um, you know, I don't know why our generation just had all the fun. Uh, and uh, uh, we had uh, a number of places to play as teenagers. You know, we're still in high school. And I mean, you know, beach clubs and high school dances and VFW halls and Latin de Vue, you know, nightclubs built for teenagers. I mean, whoever heard of that before or since, you know? Yeah, it was just an incredible time. So, um, it, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd call it a scene exactly, but it was a, uh, you know, it was just a normal part. It became a normal part of your social life. If you weren't playing that night, you went out, you went out to see a band. I mean, that, that was it, really. I mean, you know, other than going to see a movie occasionally, that's all you did, you know, so... so um, you know, it became a, 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 a normal thing to uh, uh, to see bands. Uh, and, you know, there was about a dozen in our area, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we all got to be friends and and, uh, and 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 that's how it all started. You know, we were just we were just we were, we were just uh, there at the right time. You know, really it was the right time. I mean, before the Beatles, uh, before the British invasion, if you went to your high school dance, there would be an instrumental band. You know, there was no such thing as, as, as people, you know, 
singing and playing and eventually writing their own songs. I mean, that was just a completely foreign thing, uh, you know, uh, no pun intended. But anyway, uh, so, so yeah, so we were, we were, we were just lucky, uh, lucky, we, you know, there were no, like I, like I say, there, there was no bands in America February 8th, 1964. Uh, the Beatles played a variety show called Ed Sullivan February 9th. February 10th, everybody <laughs> had a band in their garage. That's everybody cool. had a band in their garage on February 10th. Uh, and only about a dozen got out into the, into the world a little bit. The rest uh, mercifully stayed in their garage. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, we, we, we just one of the lucky ones, you know. Um, so when did you first go to Asbury Park then? Uh, the only time I visited Asbury Park was for a, band, a battle of the bands, which uh, was at the Howard Johnson's, which is now where we're... Uh, um, uh, Tim McClune. Tim, Tim McClune. McClune. Tim McClune's place, you know. Uh, I, I don't know how, how we rebuilt it, but there was to be like a roof, there used to be a rooftop where, the, where they had a, uh, like a shell where bands played. And um, yeah. We, uh, the, only, the only time I ever went to Asbury Park in, in my in those you know early days, um, until until um, late sixties, um, you know, and, and keep in mind a lot happened in a short time in those days. T time was very very different than now. You know, a lot would happen in in, in months. You know. Uh, as opposed to now where five years goes by and nothing happens, you know, uh, you would have an entirely new music trend coming at you at least every year, you know, right. and I go through it in the book, you know, uh, year by year. But anyway, um, that was the only time I visited Asbury Park until Bruce mentioned uh, this upstage club. Um, which would have been, uh, I'm not really great with these, with, with time. It all blends together, understandably. 60, 60 days, yeah, 69, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because, uh, yeah, somewhere in there, you know. So that was the only, that was, that was, you know, that was a bit of a trip, you know, it's about a half hour south. So, so <laughs> it was not exactly your neighborhood. Uh and then at that point, um, you know, right around then, uh, Asbury, they, they, they ended up opening a Hullabaloo franchise, uh, which uh, now that I think about it, uh, is really years after the TV show. It's kind of interesting. I, I, that just occurred to me just right now. Because the, the, the Hullabaloo show and Shindig, Two of the great rock and roll TV shows we had on every week. You know, we must have had eight. I mean, believe it or not, like eight rock and roll TV shows on every week. You know, and people wonder why you get nostalgic. Um, but Shindig and Hullabaloo, which I would have said lasted for years, if if I was just being asked that, you know, uh, in my mind it seemed to last five six years. Actually, they both were about a year and a half. Um, so they were, I think they were both gone by 66 and here we are playing this hullabaloo club, you know, later than that, like, like, like two, three, four years later than that. So that's kind of interesting. It just occurred to me, but, uh, the hullabaloo franchise ended up creating a circuit officially. Uh, hi baby. My doggy. <laughs> Is that my Edie? Doggy just, that's Edie. Um, 
uh, you know, so there, there was a circuit, you know, there was a hullabaloo in, in Freehold, there was a hullabaloo in Asbury, and a hullabaloo in Middletown in my town. Um, and that sort of created a, a, a triangle. And if you counted the beach clubs on the coast, it became like a bit of a parallelogram, you know, or a square, you know. Uh, and that became and that became the sort of our circuit, more or less. Uh, but at that, at, at that point, um, uh, and, and the Hello Blue Club, you know, went right into the '70s because uh, we were we we became we we became the opening act for all of the bands coming through. You know, we we opened for who? I don't who, know. Sorry to interrupt, but who is we when you when you say we were the opening act? Oh, oh so by then, yeah, by then uh, we ended up. Um, I, I guess at that point, you know, we we had a different you know we had a different band every every couple of months and. Uh, it probably was Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom, I think. Uh, or, or, Greatest or band name ever. <laughs> so we were opening for like, you know, Humble Pie and Black Sabbath and uh, and Jay Giles and, uh, you know, uh, a Big Brother, you know. Um, so, you know, uh, but that, but, you know, but it's just interesting that now that I think about it, because it's years after the, the show went off the air. So I don't know. Whatever. You have some really interesting observations in the book around this time. You're in bands, Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom, I believe. Child was another one. Uh, well, that, that was one of Bruce's. That was, that that was, was just Bruce. Bruce. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you were in Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. But there's a point where you guys are together and you recount that you say to Bruce, you're going to be the leader, you're going to be the singer, and you're going to be the main writer. And you basically make him the front man. Yeah, that was probably the very last thing we did, um, at least in my memory. So you, 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 uh, Bruce fanatics out there, who, you know, who know every single hour, uh, uh, you know, you may, you, you may uh, have have more knowledge about this than me. But I think that was the last thing we did. Uh, we tried a lot of different styles, a lot of different things, and then, and then the very, very last thing was kind of like a. What I what I've just did in the least previous three years, which was uh, horns and and girl singers, which was the final trend of the '60s. You know, the the southern uh, soul meets rock meets blues meets gospel uh, trend of, of, of is, is the final yearly trend of the '60s. As I as I go through all of the trends, um, that's the one that. Um, Really, um, it's hard to say where it started, but I, I, I attribute it to Delaney and Bonnie uh, being the, the, the source of it and uh, would ex and extend it all the way to Mad Dogs and Englishmen with, with uh, Leon Russell and, and Joe Conker. And that, that was the final evolution of the rock uh, era, uh, you know, that, that, that particular uh, Renaissance era. Um, and, and that's the last thing we tried. We only did a couple gigs that I can remember. This is Dr. Uh, Zoom or? No, no. This, the, this Bruce the Bruce Springsteen band. Bruce Springsteen band. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you, you were yeah. actually, you were actually doing a lot of, sh they, you did a bunch of shows in Richmond of all places. Yeah. And, and that seems to be where that, that chapter kind of ends. I mean, after that, it seems like Bruce, he said, you know what, I'm going to be a singer songwriter. I'm going, I'm going the folksy route here. Well, yeah, he didn't exactly say it, you know, um, but he figured that out. It, you know, he took a, he took a few months to think about it, and then and then and then just strategized that. Uh, but 
Yes, it did end in Richmond because I remember uh, our, our drummer, uh, Vinny uh, Lopez, punching our trumpet player <laughs> in the mouth. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't hit him in the shoulder or the stomach, you know, had to hit him in the mouth. Uh, and that was that was the end. And I stayed in Richmond uh, at that point. And, you know, me and Johnny started Southside Johnny and the Kid, uh, like a, a country blues duo. You know, that's kind of how I thought I remember it because I remember being in Richmond when Bruce finally did call and say, you know, I got signed. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we, we, were, we were down there. Me, him, Gary Talent was down there. Davey Sanchez was down there. And they'd drop in and be part of our thing, you know, uh, once in a while. So, so uh, yeah, and, and, you know, and then once Bruce got signed, everybody came back up to see what that was all about. And then you you went to the studio for the for those sessions, and it did you didn't last very long there. <laughs> One session exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, they just were they were they were I, they're probably uh, I'm guessing now, but uh, I don't think they were thrilled that he was signed as a folk singer, and suddenly he's got this band, you know, because it's really a pain in the ass economically, and um, nothing better for a manager or a record company than a folk singer, you know, uh, you know, they're the cheapest thing you can have <laughs> one guy, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, and, it, and, and, well, that era it was still, it was still strong that the singer songwriter era was still very strong at that point. Um, and that was, you know, the, the, the beginning of the fragmentation of the seventies, one of those fragments, very strong fragment was a singer songwriter. And uh, so, you know, they were hoping he would be, you know, the new whatever. And of course, the new Bob Dylan was, was the phrase. <laughs> right. But, you know, the new Jackson Brown, for that matter, the new Gordon Lightfoot, you know, the new, uh, you know, James Taylor, uh, the new uh, Carol King or whatever. You know. <laughs> uh, anyway, right. Um, you know, and, and uh, so he, I think he probably disappointed them very much by... Uh, saying, oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm a really a rock and roll guy, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, so I, you know, so they, they, I, I, I did one or two takes on uh, For You. Uh, I had a bottleneck part, uh, you know, I, I practiced, you know, and it was my, one of my first times in a studio ever. Um, um, and, well, and, you know, so I'm sure I was a little nervous, but, uh, you know, they tolerated like two takes and they were like, no, thanks. You know, <laughs> see ya. I, I think your book is th that's the first time that's been revealed. Right. I don't think anyone ever knew you were in the studio for greetings. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what's been revealed and what hasn't, you know, through the years. You know, I don't really follow the uh, the details. Of, but, uh, but then after, after you left that studio, you you left music. Yeah, that was uh, for me. um I honestly felt like we'd missed the boat and it was over. You know, the the, the renaissance was over and I was right about that. Um, but, you know, I just felt, you know, we just missed the boat. So I just quit and um, worked for two years, worked construction for two years. And, uh, you know, uh, fate as fate would have it, <laughs> uh, you know, broke my finger playing football, still bent. And, uh to exercise my finger. I took a gig with a bar band playing piano. Yeah. Oh, 
okay. you know, I couldn't really, I couldn't really play piano, but I could play chords, you know. And that band, as fate would have it, you know, <laughs> a lot up, of fate here. Coming, oh, a lot of fate, believe me. Uh, you know, it makes you wonder. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, that band ended up being the turning into the backup band for the Dovells. And suddenly I was on that, what they call the oldie circuit and, um, and completed my education really uh, in the music world. You know, that was a big, big, uh, a big year for me in terms of my education, you know, meeting all of those pioneers uh, and um, listening to them every night. And even though they were all in a terrible mood, you know, you know, except little Richard, who was always in a good mood. But uh, but most of them were just just they hated being called oldies. They hated being on the oldie circuit. They hated the fact that the British invasion put them all out of work, you know. And it was ironic, you know, the British invasion put all their heroes out of work. Uh, and you know, and and they and they were put out to pasture, uh, you know, late thirties, early forties. You know, early. you're done. You're done for life, man. You know, if you had. Four hits when the Beatles came, you played those four hits for the next 40 years, 30 years. You know, there was a, just a terrible uh, injustice. Uh, you, know, just, you know, nobody's fault. It just, it just happened that way because the next generation, starting with the British invasion, the audience would grow right with them, which, you know, I, right. I talk about great detail in the book because that's one of the great accomplishments of the Beatles that goes unheralded is the fact that the Beatles invented and created the concept of evolution. There was no such thing as that, album to album. You know, if you look back at the 50s, look, look back at all of those 50s pioneers, all of them, and, and they're all terrific, and they all have very strong identities, which was essential. And, but if you listen to their work, they're all, all of their work is very similar. You know, uh, you listen to, you know, Drifter's album, you know, the, you know they're all, all obviously Drifter's songs in, in, in the way that you picture that, you know, or Chuck Berry, you know, Chuck Berry's great 28, you know, uh, same three chords, you know, same, same, you know, I mean, this very, very, very uh, similar, which, which was the, that was the gig at the time, you know, uh, Make sure your your next hit is similar to your last one, so so you so you don't lose your audience. You know? It was all, it was all uniform. Yeah, very very consistent. If you go back and listen, you look, get any greatest hits records from the fifties, and you'll find every song is extremely similar. You know, not so with the Beatles. You know, who go from twist and shout to I am the walrus in four years. You know. I mean, <laughs> play, those, play, play those two songs back to back, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, and, and so that was, you know, that was just something that, that they, uh, they introduced. Uh, so, so every audience from the Beatles on would grow with the band, you know? So to this day, here we are, what is it? 50, whatever years later, Who's the biggest? Who's the biggest acts? Paul McCartney, the Beatles, and, and the Rolling Stones. You know, right? Yeah. You know. Meanwhile, the, the Drifters and Coasters, uh, and uh, you know, whoever are playing cruise ships if they're lucky. You right. know, and, and you know that that Chitlin' Circuit, man. You know, it's just one of those things. Anyway, so I was on that. I was on that oldies 
you know, hold these trip for a year, and, and uh, I was the only one enjoying it, but I, uh, I really did enjoy it and uh, learned a lot, yeah. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. And then you wind up, Bruce is now at a crossroads. His two first two records hadn't really done very well. He's in the studio recording the third record, which becomes Born to Run. It's not going very well, and you happen to be there. This is one of the seminal East Street stories. You tell it in the book. It's hilarious. He's working with a horn section that includes uh. big names, David Sanborn, the Brecker brothers, and they turn to you and... Bruce is like, this is not working. What do you think? And and you say, <laughs> you know, they like like this sucks, or you know, this really blows, or something. You know, or, you know, yeah. it's fucked up. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I it, it was it was it was sad for me. You know, you you you're fighting your whole life to you know get in that studio, man. It's so exciting, you know. And uh, it, that was the worst time to record in in history. Was the seventies. Um, you know, and I talk about it in, in great detail in the book, how the engineers had temporarily taken over and padding everywhere. So there's a separation, you know, so they can control each instrument, you know, and, uh, and it just, you know, it sounded fucking terrible. Okay. I mean, just terrible, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, you know, as you would imagine, you know, like singing into fucking pillows, you know, right. Uh, so I'm on the floor, you know, I'm like, oh, man, you know, here's my friend, you know, he's trying to make a record here, <laughs> you know, and, you know, doesn't anybody know that this sucks? You know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> well, they, this they, sucks, they you know? must have known because they were having trouble getting it. Well, oh, man, were they having trouble, you know, and I'm like, I, I'm, I was very, very naive about it and very, uh, you know, very, very primitive in my in my understanding of it. But I expected you walk into a studio 
and you hear like like you're walking into a club to see a band you know you want to hear like you know a band an exciting you know uh, uh you know an exciting bunch of noise you know <laughs> and uh man was it not that you know and uh so I was kind of just getting upset that these guys are fucking up my friend's record. You know, I tell you, you know, I'm like, man, you know, this cat's, you know, he, he made he's made it all the way here to the finish line, you know, and now, uh, you know, you guys are fucking it up. Um, you know, and I didn't understand that they were going to then, you know, they, they take all of the room sound and excitement out of the recording and then they put it all back in in the mix. You know, that was... What's the point? <laughs> honest to God, that was the concept of the 70s, okay? <laughs> Don't ask me, you know? And, and, and you know, and they, and they ended up, you know, they ended up doing a pretty good job. You know, Born to Run, you know, it sounds good, you know, uh, miraculously, you know. You know, it's not as good as, not as good as the river, of course, you know, which we did, we did the right way, you know, but, 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 um, but it's, you know, it's good. They, they did a remarkable job of, you know, piecing that stuff together one note at a time and you know it's like a jigsaw puzzle you know so anyway so yeah he says you know what do you think i said no this fucking sucks man you know <laughs> and, uh, you know i did i you know and, and uh he says all right we'll go in there and fix it well you, you know go in and fucking fix it or something like that so i just went in and did what i did every day with the jukes you know sang them the parts and uh you know and believe me, they were they were happy to get out of there. <laughs> they, they, were, they, they would have took riffs from the fucking janitor, believe me. You know, you know, just get us out of here, man. You know. <laughs> and then and then from there you, you joined the band. Um and yeah. you you're now you say in the book, I mean you basically describe the bottom line as like a test run for you. Is is that's I always thought it was you that was you joined the band period and you were there not not no, a no, test it wasn't, no it wasn't a test run um, um, I joined the band when there was only seven gigs booked that was it you know the career was like over and so it wasn't so much a test run uh, in, in I mean in in my mind um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say in my mind that I had fully committed to it. You know, if that's what you mean by a test run, uh, yeah, you might have a point there. Because um, you know, I had the Jukes going, and um, you know, they were not thrilled that I was leaving the Jukes. I had just gotten them signed. You know, Steve Popovich signed them, and Stevie was like not thrilled that I was leaving them. He's like, "You're half the band," you know, at least. <laughs> You know, and we were really, me and Johnny were like co-singers, you know, we, we wanted to be the white Sam and Dave, you know. And uh, so finally get him signed with, with Popovich thinking I'm in the group. <laughs> and then surprise, <laughs> I'm leaving, you know. So they were not too thrilled about that. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, I, really, you know. But so Bruce was just like, I'm putting the guitar down for these seven shows. I've tried everything else. I'm going to try fronting. You know, maybe that'll make a difference. You know, maybe that'll find a way to connect with an audience, you know, and, and it really did uh, change, uh, change the game quite, quite significantly. Cause uh, you know, front man, uh, you know, who's, who's not playing uh, an instrument uh, as far more uh, contact and, and uh, freedom and uh, a much more intimate relationship, really, with an audience. Uh, 
you know, that guitar, you know, is great, you know, and of course the Beatles, you know, are the ultimate example of that, but it's a barrier. It's still, it's still a bit of a, it's a bit of a wall between you and the audience in, in a way, you know, um, in a sense, you know, uh, unless you're Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in which yeah. case, you know, the guitar becomes every woman in the audience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you are making love to that woman, you know, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a rare exception, I think. For the most part, you know, uh, you know, the, the performers, really, if you think of performers, they're always the front men, right? It's, it's Mick Jagger, the most famous of them all. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's Iggy Pop, you know, it's Peter Garrett, it's Johnny Rotten, you know, right? You know, uh, uh, Peter Wolf, you know, the great performers, you know, are always, you know, the, the ones trying to be Jackie Wilson and James Brown and, you know, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Sam Cooke, you know? So after you join the band now, of course, unfortunately, trouble sets in. There's a lawsuit that Bruce gets hit with. He can't record. And you tell a, a really, really in a compelling fashion in the book, there's a band meeting. People aren't getting paid at that point. And a vote is going to be taken to disband the E Street Band. And the first three guys vote. Let's leave. And at that point, you in the book relate that you're like, hold on now. We can't do this. And Steve Popovich, who you just mentioned with Southside, plays a key role here. You actually basically save the day. Saves the band. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows what would have happened. But but um, it was a scary moment for sure. And uh, things were not looking good. You know, they, they really weren't. You, you couldn't blame the guys for, for thinking about leaving. Because it just was at that point a failed experiment, <laughs> you know. It was kind of, you know, it was, uh, you know. But I was like, um, man, you know. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think. Um, I didn't lose faith in, in in Bruce for for you know for one single minute, and I never had. You know, I was kind of the first one to have faith in, in him in the first place. Uh, you know, I saw something in him very, very early on that nobody else did. Right. Well, and, as we uh, mentioned, you were the one who said to him, you're going to be the front man. Yeah. But even before that, I mean, he just was different. You know, he was different. And, and, uh, and I like that difference where, where most people, you know, are afraid of those who are different or putting it down or, you know, or, you know, disturbed by it or, or confused by it. I, I, I like the fact that he was different and, uh, you know, and 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 had and was so single-minded. You know, you know, whenever I had some doubts, you know, about my own single-mindedness having to do with rock and roll, you know, he was the only other guy I could rely on who who felt rock and roll was everything. You know, not just uh, you know this or just that, just a hobby. It was everything. You know, so um, you know, we strengthened each other that way. I'm sure right from the beginning, and uh, you know, so I, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't quite, um, you know, my tendency at that point was to blame other things, you know, uh, like, 
it's not my friend's fault you know, that, you know, that things aren't selling. You know, he's not a fucking promo man or marketing guy, you know. He's, a, he's you know, he's an artist. I mean, you know, anyway, so uh, who knows what would have happened. But, yeah, we, we, we uh, Steve Popovich saved the day um, that day. And then, and then Frankie Barcelona uh, really made a you know a huge difference. Uh, uh, who was one of my lifelong, uh, my another one of my lifelong friends who uh, really had juice in those days. I mean, he was really the godfather of of rock, and uh, and I wish I'd I wish I'd written the book about him that I tried. I I, I still often wanted to do, and somebody somebody will write it, or maybe I'll write it eventually, but. Somebody needs to write a book about Frank Barcelona, who was the most important guy, arguably, uh, in, a, in the history of the rock industry, certainly. Oh, wow. uh, single-handedly created the entire rock era, you know? Uh, anyway, well, so... Because, uh, because of how he booked his tours. Well, um, uh, well very briefly, um, I, I, I go a little bit more detail in the book, but he, he, he did a few things that no one had ever done. Number one... Uh, uh, he felt that the, the most important thing for a band is live performance. Uh, he felt that the records and radio would catch up to that. That was a completely new idea. Um, he structured the entire rock industry the way that Maranzano and then Luciano had, had, had organized the mob. Uh, <laughs> everybody got their territory, you know, he's new. He put, he put his own promoters in place. Um, you know, and the old mustache peats, as we call them, the old promoters who hated rock and roll, you know, and would steal left and right. Uh, he got rid of them and started putting his own promoters in place. And he said to them, because you know, at that point, rock and roll literally was coming and going in, in the Wild West. And, and who knows, it was going to last another week, you know. Uh, he, he put his own people in place and said, listen, you're going to lose money on the first tour or two. You're going to break even on the next tour or two. And then you're going to make money for the rest of your life. So everybody relaxed. Uh, and, uh, and, and Frank created the concept of longevity, which didn't exist. Okay. So, um, you know, and a bunch of other things, but, but, but he had basically, completely transformed the business into a business that was legitimate, fair, dependable, consistent, and had, and had longevity by himself, you know? Uh, and so uh, I had, when I was shopping around, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to st stop managing the jukes. I'm managing the jukes, you know? And, and then I joined up with the E Street Band. I'm like, I got to get rid of this, you know? I don't want to be a manager, you know? So I'm looking around for managers. I'm looking around for agents. And I had run into him and, and, uh, and he became the Jukes agent. And boom, man, you know, we had no radio airplay and we're making a million dollars a year with the Jukes because of, because of Frank's muscle. And so I was like, man, he's the best. My friend's gotta be with the best. Right. So uh, we ended up hooking that up and, and then Frank, uh, uh, loaned him a lot of money, uh, which we needed, you know, just completely broke, you know, and um, it was like a hundred grand at the time, which is like, you know, I don't know what, you know, a million now, or, you know, half a million. Um, so he really saved, saved the day in two or three ways. I mean, 
financially, but also just bringing his bringing his muscle to the Bruce Springsteen, you know, in the E Street Band, meant that the promoters now, who had kind of given up on him, you know, they had to they had to they had to do what Frank said, and even the industry, even even the record company and everybody else had to give him a second look now, because Frank Frank just took over, you know, and nobody's gonna fuck with Frank, nobody. You know, so suddenly that juice, I think, you know, helped out with the record company. It helped out with the promoters and gave us, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of wiggle room through the whole darkness period, which was still, you know, a bit chaotic, <laughs> you know, until we finally could break through with, with, with the fifth album with the river, you know, but uh, it was Steve Popovich and Frank Barcelona that, uh, came to the rescue, you know? Okay, so we're going to break it there. A bit of a cliffhanger, Steve telling the tale of 1977. As we all know, it turned out pretty well for them because they went on to record Darkness on the Edge of Town and The River. And we're going to address both of those records when we pick up with Steve in part two. And you're not going to want to miss that. And one last thing for tonight's episode, we also spoke to Steve about something very special he's doing with Backstreet's Magazine. You signed some baseball cards of yourself as Miami Steve for uh, for Backstreets.com to sell. That would that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I <laughs> you don't sound too thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> we both bought it. Yeah. <laughs> that was coerced by the Jersey guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Richie Russo had this uh, had this idea, and you know, I I don't, I don't mind really. Uh, it was a funny thing to do, and I thought. You know, is anybody really going to, you know, uh, respond to that? And he says, yeah, watch, you know, massive so, response. Yeah. 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 It's been it's been kind Chris of just tweeted about it today. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm signing. Uh, I don't know, we'll see how many, however many, however many sell. I'm going to sign. OK. You know, but but not forever. You know, this is just a, a finite, you know. <laughs> So if any if anyone wants the book, they can go to Backstreets.com and get the Miami Steve signed edition. The yes. little Steven signed edition is available through many bookstores. Uh, check it out on the Internet. There have been links through Steve's account and through some of the other accounts. Also, it's going to be available through all retailers, Amazon and your Barnes and Noble. And as we said, when we started the show, it's it's a phenomenal read. We're not just saying that. It, it really is. Very fun. Very fun. I mean, that's I laughed out loud. And my wife would be like, what's so funny? And I had I would have to explain to her, you know, well, I, I don't want to see you had a little addiction in the 70s. I don't want to talk about it, but uh, <laughs> not not. And I'm not talking. We're not about going. We're not going there. Let's go back to. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, 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 but just to finish the thought, you know, I, I tell people, you know, if, if they have local bookstores, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and they're fewer and fewer, unfortunately, uh, please support them, you know, and, 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 you know, the bigger, the bigger chains, you know, are, are very necessary and very important for those who don't have the local bookstores, you know, and believe me, most of the country at this point don't have the local bookstores. So that's where the, you know, the Barnes and Nobles or Amazons or whoever it is really, really do a really do an important job. But if you do have a local bookstore, you know, you should support it. Uh, the Miamis, uh, uh, on the day it comes out, uh, September 28th, is the end of the Miamis. So <laughs> the Miami's in right now. <laughs> well, Chris said today when he tweeted, he, he, you have 3,000 of them. They've already sold over 2,000, so they're running out. 
He was, no you know, huh? yeah. That's Three what thousand? he said in his tweet. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty good, huh? Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. No, I'm. You know, I. You know, whatever they, whatever they sell, I'm going to do. So. Oh, well, you know. when they announced that, I right away, I was like, oh, my God, I got to have one of those. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, so, again, that was Steve Van Zandt talking about unrequited infatuations available September 28th. What a treat. Oh, my God. It, I can't believe our good fortune. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. But, wow, that was great. And part two, I think, is even better. Oh, I, I agree. That's when we get more to, we, we talk about the river. We talk about born in the USA and, and his solo stuff. And, and of course the reunion era, as we like to call it. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite parts of that, no spoilers, but he addresses some stuff from letter to you that is, is really quite touching and emotional. I think. Yeah. It's very, very unique uh, perspective from coming from Steve. That's for sure. So you're not going to want to miss part two. That concludes tonight's episode. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and a part of Evergreen Podcast. You can find us on the web at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. On Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean. Again, thanking Steve Van Zandt for, uh, for joining us. Such a thrill. And uh, look forward to episode two of, of our interview with him. And we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.